Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School, here on the No Film School podcast. Today we have a guest named BK Fulton. Um, This is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done, and I think it's one of the best. Not because of me, but because of BK. Um, He is an executive producer, filmmaker, entrepreneur, businessman who created his own production company and has created his own slate of films. Uh, It's a sustainable business model. They are continuing to make more films. They have uh, a channel they're working on to put out short form content. He has a couple books he wrote. They have a magazine. They have multiple divisions of content and it's all working. And if you haven't heard of it or you haven't heard of the films, that's because they really just got started and yet they're doing really well. Um, But what's exciting about BK Fulton and Solidify Productions, his company, is their intentions, how they're going about doing this and why he is doing it this way is really what you have to listen to this podcast for. His approach to this process is refreshing, eye-opening, inspiring even. And I say that as a person who tends to be a little jaded and tends to have a cold, dead heart. <laughs> I uh, I don't want to go on too long because I just want to let him speak for himself. But I think that there is so much to take from this in terms of why we do what we do how to approach it to make it feel sustainable and worthwhile. And really for him, the proof is in the pudding because it's working and the spirit that he's approached this with has taken him far already. So I hope that everyone can get something out of this and learn a little bit about how he's going after these goals and why he's finding some success. So here we go. Thanks so much for doing this. Really excited to have you. And, uh, you know, I guess I'd like to, you have a long and varied career that covers a whole bunch of different fields (laughs) and output (laughs) and uh, types of content. And we're obviously at No Film School, a filmmaking website. Um, We've actually interviewed on the site filmmakers who did some of the films uh, that you've produced, that your company made, um, Hell on the Border. Uh, yeah, Wes, and, yeah. Yeah, Wes, I spoke to, who was great. But, um, you know, it's great to have you. And I guess the best way I want to start, even though I've kind of like laid out some of, there, there's a lot you're, you've done. I'd like to ask you, you know, to kind of take us through how you got to filmmaking. And all the things that you did prior that sort of brought you into that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that could take a while. Uh, I'll give you. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can do the quickest version, it, or not. You know, we yeah. have time. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a short version. So, uh, human beings are an aggregate of our experiences, right? And for me, I was always that kind of inquisitive child um, who 
wanted to know how things work, what what made them what they are. And so I would tinker a lot, um, taking things apart, putting them back together. Um, I also had a handicapped sister at home who didn't walk or talk, but I had to take care of her until my parents came home before I could go out and play ball or when I was on the teams at school, um, before I could do anything really. I needed to make sure that my sister was cared for and safe. And so the combination of caring for someone who really needed you and tinkering with things to satisfy curiosity morphed into a person who decided after high school that I should go to engineering school. Um, Virginia Tech was the first school in the country to require incoming engineers to buy a computer as part of their standard school supply. And so it was the only way I could force my parents to spend six grand on what otherwise looked like a, a big computer game. And um, at the time, for $6,000, you got a 47-pound thing that looked like a suitcase, a six-inch monochrome monitor, and 64K of RAM. $6,000. And but Not the I, modern in, PC. <laughs> not the modern PC, but definitely the first to, to become uh, commercially available. And, but from that point to this, I've been this kind of technology native. And I was like a typical student and you know, I played a little ball in college and met all these beautiful people and got a bit distracted. And, oh yeah, what about school? Well, school wasn't going so good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I decided to, uh, that I needed to leave, or I may need to leave Virginia Tech, especially those letters from the registrar's office that said, you know, I would, might get on pro- probation if I didn't clean it up. And, <laughs> and so I went to the library to plan my escape. And, and so literally, I'm in the library, and I feel like it was divine, and I ended up in the E185.5 section of the Dewey Decimal System. Now, in any system that uses the Dewey Decimal System, that happens to be the section on black people. And <laughs> there's, a, I, there's a lot of people who won't be familiar. I am familiar with the concept of the Dewey Decimal System. There you for go. for those who aren't, we all used to have to learn how to use it. It was how we found books. In how we found books. Exactly. I know it's crazy. It's crazy to think about such a thing right now. Exactly. Like they're, like they're thinking books, huh? Yeah, anyway. books, right? Right? <laughs> so I'm in there and... I'm coming across these books about these inventions and these um, stories that I'd never read before. You know, Lewis Latimer and his invention of the carbon filament that allowed the light bulb to burn. Uh, Granville T. Woods and the electric third rail. And it powers the subway still to this day. He sold the patent to General Electric in 1901. The guy who invented the stoplight happened to be an African-American guy. The lady who invented GPS, African-American woman. Um, I was amazed. Even the golf tee, the first golf tee was invented by a guy named Dr. Grant. He also was the first professor at Harvard, first first African-American professor at Harvard, and a dentist. And I'm like, good God Almighty. And so how come I didn't know this stuff? So I got angry initially. And... I then realized that maybe my professor didn't know these things either. And so I went back to my engineering class. I was an engineering student. And I mentioned in a, during a lecture on a light bulb, Louis Latimer. And he said, oh, my God, nobody taught me that. I'll look it up. And he added to the lecture to his credit. 
So then I realized that, you know what, this ain't just, this isn't always about people being racist or biased. If they don't know, they can't teach it. Right. And then I realized, wait a minute, my grades are now, instead of the probation list, I'm on the dean's list. Oh my <laughs> God. So if reading about this stuff can put my life on rocket boosters, what would happen if I put it on the big screen? If I put it in cinema with great acting, great scripts, great music, and the, 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 the kernel of what I would do with the rest of my life started to unfold. And um, I ended up uh, enlisting the talents of a guy who helped Spike Lee to found 40 Acres and a Mule, who happened to be in um, Virginia teaching at ODU. Another friend who was in New York, he understudied under Joe Schumacher and Martin Scorsese and helped to market the original movie pass. So Q, Keon Martin came, and he's our chief creative officer now. Monty's our president of film and production. And we found other people who had been working with talented creatives. Our, our primary cinematographer, Hans Charles, had worked with Ava DuVernay and actually Lens the 13th. And so we pulled these people that were young and hungry. Wes, who was a great screenwriter, director, Wes Miller. And we put together this talented team. It was like a super group for, of independent filmmakers. And we set out to do projects, but not through the lens of our sorrows. Historically, women and minorities have been asked to tell their stories through the prism of sorrows. So tell me about slavery. Tell me about um, civil rights and your struggles. Tell me about domestic violence. And tell me about, you know, Pookie getting shot and boys in the, in, in the urban space. And I'm like, I'm tired of shooting Pookie. I'm going I'm to give Pookie a break. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I'm going to tell some of these stories that haven't been told. And what ended up happening was in our first year, we made four movies, I mean, four features, actually five. And we're the first production company, independent production company in the history of cinema to do four features in our very first year. And they're, they're good. It's not like just we kind of got an iPhone and filmed and we're doing 4K cameras, reds, 8K in some instances. Uh, we've got you know, bankable talent in the movies. And our first movie had Tay Diggs, John Cusack, George Lopez, and Luke Hemsworth. Who does that in their first movie? Um, <laughs> we weren't trying to make history. We were trying to make good art. When you think about it, you know, when I was growing up, you know, Sunday school was a big part of our lives, you know, Sunday school and church every Sunday. Uh, we were learning whatever we were learning in school, but you find out later that they're not always teaching you the, the best stuff. And whatever you got from your community was your education. And, you know, fast forward to today, if it's not church, if it's not school, if it's not the community that I can turn to, to heal my heart, to recalibrate my moral compass in my head, then what is it? And it turns out that art, art is the thing that can touch minds, can touch hearts, that can give us an opportunity in a non-threatening way to look into someone else's world, to voyeuristically even come into a classroom like we did in One Angry Black Man 
and we let people see what students are talking about authentically. Uh, we can show some of these heroes and creators and people who've accomplished. And then when that happens, people say, wait a minute, I was misinformed about this community. I was misinformed about that point of view. And I think art gives us the best chance to heal and to make people think and to push forward into the best world that we can create. And we start by becoming the best version of ourselves. Well, that's beautifully said. <laughs> I mean, that's extremely well, uh, well laid out. And it, there's so many, so many things you, you bring up that uh, touch on stuff that I've spoken about on our, on our podcasts here at No Film School and we've written about. And certainly in the last, particularly in the last few months uh, in the climate in this nation right now. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, it, I'm recalling that, you know, I, when I spoke to uh, and interviewed Wes Miller for um, Hell, Hell on the Border, one of the reasons I was drawn to it, you know, I'm a fan of Westerns and I grew up a fan of The Lone Ranger. And I was immediately drawn to the fact that somebody made a movie about Bass Reeves because I knew about Bass Reeves because I'd, you know, done some Googling. I'd read about it. I knew that I think Legendary once had an interest. I knew some people at Legendary trying to make a movie about him and a friend who was a development executive there. And I remember him telling me about the struggle to get that through. But to me, the story of Bass Reeves was fascinating because, and for those who don't know, listening in the context, Bass Reeves is an African-American sheriff who really existed in the real history of the United States and was probably the real Lone Ranger or the basis for it. And just like all the inventors uh, you mentioned and how going into the library and reading about them lit a match for you and sparked an inspiration that got you excited about learning, um, you know, uh, learning about this Lone Ranger, the truth of the Lone Ranger fascinated me as a person who knew Lone Ranger as a kid listening to it, uh, book on tape or watching old, you know, movies or whatever. It was a white guy. But knowing the truth was suddenly eye-opening and fascinating. And it was like, I want I want to hear that story. Um, so when I saw somebody made the movie, being at no film school and talking to the filmmaker, I was excited to hear about more behind that. Um, and, you know, I think, and we've spoken about it a lot here on No Film School, that showing people it, it, when we talk about trying to open up diversity, expand people's understanding of the world or their compassion, there's a lot that happens in terms of you know who we hire, who we put behind the camera, but also what kind of stories we're telling because people tend to mimic or emulate the stories they see on the screen, right? So the the uh, making a hero, a real life hero like Bass Reeves on the big screen. It's important because then people see it. You know, they see the, I, you know, the Watchmen had come out and there's a little bit in there about it. Just like a lot of people, a lot of white people only learned about the Tulsa massacre because of that Watchmen show on HBO, which is a shame, really. But at least it happened, right? And just just like Bass Reeves, a lot of people only realized what Bass Reeves was by watching that very same episode. Um, so I think it's, I think you're, dead on in that there's an importance to telling a story that isn't like you said through the lens of sorrow sorrow but but aspirational hopeful uh heroic 
and inspiring because just like your story, another thing with No Film School, there's so many things you said that I wanted to highlight, but another thing with No Film School is we're about self-education. The idea is that we exist so people who can't necessarily afford to take on debt to go to film school can get a filmmaking education and learn how to do it. And Wes was a great example because he he was a reader of the site, but he also loved, he, he was like self-taught, you know? And the idea that you walked into a library and found something that got you excited about learning and then you taught yourself things, I think is core to our mission statement. You know, we want to help people go seek out the knowledge that excites them and then figure out how to do it and start doing it. Um, but I want to hear... You speak more on, you know, you've been you're trying to forge this path in in filmmaking and successfully so far, uh, independently. And a lot of our listeners are are going to be fascinated to know things like how you do that, how you get started, you know, some of the nuts and bolts. But another thing that is of interest is just how the world has changed in the last few months beyond just you know the COVID pandemic, and how you think we can all do better uh, in terms of Black Lives Matter and in terms of being more open-minded in terms of the work we do around this industry. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And uh, I I know there's a lot of people who want to do better, you know, and, and want to find ways to do better, but maybe don't necessarily know what to do. Sure. Well, I'm happy to help with that. And and then if we, as I make, give you an answer, because you, you, you packed a lot in that question and preamble <laughs> to it. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. And then just we'll if, I miss, <laughs> if I miss something, just come back to it, remind sure, me of, of course, or, yeah. or pick up on a thread. Um, but the, the short answer is they've got to, we've got to do the work. We all have to do the work. I mean, I think everybody wants a civil society. They want a place where they can grow up and have their families to grow up and enjoy uh, relative safety and comfort. We don't want a whole bunch of crazy things around us. We don't want a <laughs> bunch of crime. I mean, so, so we share that. And so I think we align on the places where we have these common values. And most people kind of do what they do uh, out of an aspiration for having a better life for, them, for their children. And I think we can align around that. Um, that said, if my children aren't safe, your children are not safe. And so we can't have a police system or an education system or a political system that is not accountable. And what you see in the streets right now are people saying, you know, enough with the lies, let us create accountability. I mean, think about like, so here in Richmond yesterday, the Stonewall Jackson monument came down. The mayor just decided, okay, it's time. I have the authority to do it. I'm going to do it. No more talk. And uh, folk applauded that. And it was a rainbow of people out supporting that. Even the sky started pouring. The lightning <laughs> went around the central city. And the rain kind of washed this uh, sadness away in, in, in a symbolic way. But um, that happened. You know, Mississippi um, voted to take the Confederate flag off of their state flag. Now, I, I was joking with someone. I said, you know, I, I love it that they did that. Mississippi kind of runs a little late on things. I mean, it took them. <laughs> you can uh, say that. <laughs> it, it, it took it took them until 2013 to to, uh, to to ratify the Emancipation Proclamation. So just 148 years late, but we got it done. They got they got it done, 
And so I, I sense a tipping point. I sense a, um, a, a shift that really we hadn't seen since probably the civil rights movement, um, where, the, where there's this sustained kind of not just I'm protesting for the night or a few days, but it's going on, you know, we're in our second month now. And people are right. saying, no, fix this, fix that. Even, you know, Christopher Columbus, I read this morning, the statue of Christopher Columbus in Columbus, Ohio, in front of the city hall is coming down. And I was like, wow, okay, all right. And you have people that ha- have attachments to it. I think it went up in the 1930s. Um, at the time, our Italian brothers were really being put upon by the external society. And so this idea of um, a great person from Italy in the body of Christopher Columbus was a way to have this symbolic um, uh, renewal of the Italian mystique. Um, The problem with the story, though, is that most of the stuff he was getting credit, given credit for was like made up. I mean, literally the guy, uh, uh, I think his name was like Washington Irving or Irving Washington, whichever way it goes, Washington Irving, I think. So he wrote the four volumes on Christopher Columbus that are in London and the three volumes of the kind of the, the popular history um, in the U.S. And you can Wikipedia it after this session and it'll say that the history on Christopher Columbus is largely hyperbole. And that's not means I'm just a quote. And, and so what the, what the guy did was he was saying, well, I don't, I want to, he had access to the facts. So he said, I, I think I should change this and change that so that um, people have a, a more of an affinity towards this group. So let me say he discovered America and let me say he thought the world was round, neither of which are true. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, he, he actually thought it was flat. And, and you know, it, and, he's a. It's funny you went to him because you know we could. There's so many things we can talk about here, but the the statues coming down is kind of a fascinating subplot in all of this. Uh, well, sure, it's it's, it's just it, symbolic. But let me let me finish it, this point. Right. Oh yeah, finish this point. Yeah. So so it's symbolic. But here's the other thing about you kind know, of Washington Irving. Guess what else he wrote. The legend of, Whip, of Rip Van Winkle and the legend of Sleepy Hollow. I mean, this guy, he was good at... <laughs> he was a fiction writer. A fiction writer, exactly. <laughs> and so and that's not who I want to get my actual history from. Right. Especially, I love Italian. I mean, some of my best friends are Italian. The guy who <laughs> makes my clothes is an Italian knight. Salvatore Giardino. I love that man. But at the same time, I don't want for him or his kids a bill of goods. And I don't want my kids to learn a bill of goods about who he is. I want to have an authentic and real conversation. And what I see from the young people today is that authenticity matters to them as well. They're in a world where this technology gives them instant access to each other, to information. They can do their fact checking. You can post up videos. And so what ends up happening in this kind of society is you're not waiting for Walter Cronkite uh, to tell you what to believe. You're not waiting for Hoda Kotb or Deborah Roberts or Maria Shriver or any of the great reporters to tell you what you need to think or what you need to know because you're kind of getting it real time. 
because of the way our world is operating and the technology we have today. And so I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to close the gap between indoctrination and critical thinking. And, and, and the truth is in that gap. And the more we close it, I think the better our country will be and our world. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny because going back to your Dewey Decimal story, you don't have to use the Dewey Decimal system now to fact check. It's quite easy. And I, and I think people overcomplicate you know, sources and this idea of fake news and stuff like you can go confirm for yourself. You can seek out the sources and check them and you can find the answers. They're out there and they're, they're clear. It's quite simple, actually. It's quite simple. Um, I mean, I mean, not, (laughs) not knowing is one thing and I don't fault people for not knowing. I I had to learn this stuff, but not wanting to know is something different. Or turning away and saying, you know, you don't believe the source without doing some due diligence. Um, You know, context, I think, personally, I I think context is everything. And I think erasing things without seeing their context, like we can use Christopher Columbus as an example of a place to learn more. What really happened? What's the big picture? What's the broad, Mm -hmm. like, what's the real history? Where does Mm -hmm. he fit into it? Mm-hmm. Um, the context of him matters. Uh, eliminating the individual thing means we're no longer just like you know Stonewall Jackson, for example. You could go learn about Stonewall Jackson. You don't need the statue there. Um, there's there's an opportunity to learn your history or learn whatever you want. Or you know we wrote about on No Film School when HBO Max removed Gone with the Wind temporarily. It's already back. Um, they removed it partly because of an op-ed that was written. Um, a great op-ed, by the way. And the idea was just, it's a, the movie doesn't need to be censored. It doesn't need to be scrubbed from the history books. That would be akin to lying. It, the movie needs to be presented in a context so people can understand when they're going in, what they're going to see, where it comes from, why it's the way it is, what the history around it was and the history it's, it's reflecting. And I think that's education, you know, that like we, that is valuable. And I thought it was great that they pulled it and tried to provide some actual context. Cause to me, the context is what matters. Um, but you know, just like, just like with statues or just like with any of these things, creating an under a better understanding is available. And I agree. Um, I'm curious. Let me, let me, let me, let me jump in there for a second. You're making yeah. some really good points. So I, 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 I don't mind the gone with the wind. I, I think it, it's filmed. It was done when it was done. It was done in, in, in an early part of the evolution of cinema. And so what I hope we do, and it, and it, and it supports the point you're making ultimately, is that I, I hope we teach people to critically think. So then they began to seek context or provide verifiable context themselves. Yes. Then I've taught you how to use your brain. Right. And I've made you more valuable. If I have to still spoon feed you yeah, how to process right. this nonsense or, 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 or this thing over here or this thing over there, I, I'm still, I've still got some work on you to do. And what I, what I think uh, we have an opportunity to do with all this access to resources or whatever is to create more critical thinkers. And, um, and I think then w- with, with art, with film, the expressions we get will be more true. Let me give you some statistics from Hollywood. Yes. Uh, so, so, so right now, so this is the UCLA's uh, 2020 and 2019 Hollywood Diversity Reports. This is current information. 
CEOs and chairs in Hollywood, 91% white, 82% male. Senior executives, 93% white, 80% male. Unit heads, 86% white, 59% well. TV show creators, 91% white, 78% male. Theatrical film directors, 85% white, 85% male. Theatrical film writers, 86% white, 83% male. We have a white male dominated industry. And so you shouldn't be surprised that the films and the stories and the things we get are going to reflect that point of view. We need more women. We need more Shonda Rhimes. We need more One Angry Black Man. That's our latest film. We need more from the fabric of humanity to talk about what's happening in the world. Otherwise, if I keep feeding you this narrative, so let's say if I feed you the narrative, women aren't good at math. It's not true. But if I say it long enough, people start believing it. And then people are raised by people who believe it and they don't even know, right? And they don't even know it. So then all of a sudden, if I actually, so when when I tell you the truth, when I say actually that was not true, women are going to, no, no, that can't be true because women aren't good at math and women aren't good drivers or whatever. And so if if we allow foolishness to be popularized, it carries on. It carries on. I am so proud of the young people for saying, you know what, we are going to do something different. We're going to go out here and we're going to align with Black Lives Matter. And for the people, for some people, well, Black, isn't that racist? Isn't that reverse racism? Uh, I'm like, yeah. wait, I'm like, wait a minute, dude. Okay, <laughs> let's let's take it out of black and white because I know it's a raw nerve because because of the way we've been taught to think about things in black and white. So let's talk about trees for a second. They're like, BK, where are you going with this? I was like, okay, <laughs> if there if there is a tree in the forest on fire, and you go in, do you stop and say, wait a minute, all trees matter, or do you focus on the one that's on fire? If you're smart. You focus on the one that's on fire, so the rest of them don't burn down. And yeah, it's a of good course, metaphor. all trees are important, but we got to take care of the one that's hurting. Yeah. And black people were the are the ones where, when police officers stop black men in particular, but it also happened to black women and black children, they're getting killed at, at, at traffic stops for having a water gun for for happen to be in my house, but somebody did a knock warrant on the wrong house and and it results in death. And so, so that's the tree that's on fire. That's the one we need to fix. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a call to humanity. When we saw what we saw in Minneapolis with the murder of of George Floyd, it was, it, it, it woke up something in, in the world and people, it's almost like, Back when they're in the 60s, when people saw the civil rights movement on TV. So all of a sudden, you see these people dressed in their Sunday best, getting water hose put on them and uh-huh. dog sicked on them because they want to vote. Right. Because they want to vote. Wait a minute. Is this the America I want for my children and my grandchildren? And so I think we each time, uh, you know, I sit down with friends who are well meaning and they want to figure this stuff out. I first we align on common values and they figure I'm, I'm a human being just like you. We're all cousins trying to find our way home. This is not, 
I'm trying to take over your stuff. I don't want your stuff. I want you to have your stuff. I just want to be able to keep mine. You know, I mean, I mean, you think about like, so when, when a lot of those statues and things, the symbols of the Confederacy were put up, you know, today we say my heritage, my heritage, but, but, but is that what it was really about? So if it was about heritage, we didn't put it up after the war. We didn't put it up when we had this, this run in the country on honoring fallen soldiers. They were put up, the lion's share of them were put up at a time where mobs were attacking black communities and lynching as many as one or two black men every other day. That's the climate where those statues went up. It was, we're in charge. The South is taking back over. And it was, it was not this altruistic thing. It was a statement of supremacy. In fact, I mean, Tulsa, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, the race riot there, which in 1921 um, was considered the worst ever, uh, a town was, the Tulsa, the, the black community was bombed, 35 square blocks burned to the ground. Uh, it was also known as the Black Wall Street. So it wasn't just random. It was these people played by the rules, built up a society against the odds, and then was destroyed because somebody said, oh, uh, a black guy ran into a white woman in an elevator downtown, so let's go kill everybody. Like, what? You can't have that kind of mob rule. Um, Emmett Till was killed murdered because allegedly he whistled at a white woman and the husband somehow his honor was challenged so he you know killed this child and then to find out 60 years later that he actually never did it yeah it's, you know and it's, so, it's one of so many similar instances too that's you yeah. know not an isolated incident by any stretch um you know, you there. There's so much. I want to just go back real quick to one of the yep. things you said about statistics. I think that it's easy for all of us to see some of these gestures, which are fine, right? You know, they're pulling episodes of TV that use blackface, or they're making choices that you know reflect some of the 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 needs of the moment, right? But it's not fundamentally going to change the way one law enforcement works <laughs> or two uh the way this industry functions if you're it, it's a it's a good thing but i think we need to call out at least i feel i need to call out um that we are still going to be governed by a white male body in this in this industry and that your the statistics you cite all point that out, and it's it's not going to change. And there's two things that are so valuable about identifying that I think, and I'm and I'm glad you brought those numbers up because data is everything. Um, one is that it's really going to hurt, and I think it continues to hurt the quality of the stuff we get because diversity isn't just about filling out like a quota; it's about getting different kinds of stories. Like what won Best Picture this last year? It was a movie from another country, from a different perspective, from a different culture, from a non-white filmmaker. And I think that 
that's because it's nice to see stories that come from these are valuable different perspectives and and frankly we've seen a lot of things from this monoculture really like we've seen a lot of movies from this kind of person this kind of filmmaker a white man um it's it would be and a lot of them are really good i don't know if we can top it to be honest i think sometimes personally i think it would be nice like let's let's expand the palette and the complaint that you're going to hear a lot is that it's, you know, it's, it's eliminating opportunities, which is kind of false. It's sort of like the all lives matter. What I love about your forest metaphor is that not, is that focusing on all the trees that are fine instead of the tree that's on fire actually puts all the trees that are fine at risk. And I think that, I think that truly applies to like who next there's a thing of like, if, if you, if you allow this, if you ignore the person who's in pain right now and being targeted, where does where do you draw the line? Because it's going to catch to other people if you don't rein in the power of law enforcement, you know, and, and the abuse of that power in this instance. Then what happens when it targets somebody else? I think that's a place people can unite, you know. And and similarly with filmmaking, though, like I feel strongly, we need to not have just one, you know. Uh, Shonda Rhimes out there. We need to have a lot of people. That's that's not enough. Like there need to be more people in every writer's room. There need to be more people because otherwise the stuff gets stale. Frankly, it's not even just about justice. It's also just about quality. Like well, I let, think- let me let, let me share this with you. This is this is spot on. I mean, I think I hope people really are going to enjoy this interview. All right. So let me ask you this. I'm being rhetorical here. So so bear with me. All right. <laughs> okay. Where is the cure? For ALS coming from, I don't. And, and, and exactly, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. That's the right answer. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be on. I'm not the guy to ask. <laughs> right. Where is the cure for cancer coming from? Also, don't know. But I think where now is, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> so, so what ends up happening in the world is that the the cures for the things that are broken are randomly distributed throughout the world. None of us know where they're coming from. So it's in our naked self-interest to invest in everybody because one of these somebodies has the answer. That's why I want more critical thinking. That's why I'm not afraid to teach people to evaluate and to assess the facts, the risk, and to make judgments because then you know, even with these glaring statistics that you know Hollywood is white and male, that wouldn't be as big a problem as it is currently if their training, that the foundation for what makes them who they are, was better informed. There are a lot of people who think they're educated and they're not. There are some people who, even in the face of this, these statistics, as you said, would think that programs that lifted a new Shonda Rhimes or lifted a BK Fulton Solidify are somehow taking away from them. So I'm yes. like, wait a minute, you've got <laughs> 89% of the pie and I'm just trying to get a little piece and now I'm taking away from your whole experience? Come yes. on, give me a break. That's because you're, you've been taught that the whole thing is yours. Right. And that's just not true, and it's not going to work. 
Yeah, the word for that that we come back to a lot these days is just entitlement. And I think people feel like that word is is like uh, you have to think of that word in this context as it's a it's a misunderstanding. The the idea of entitlement is like, well, it's always been this way. We've always had the whole pie. It's like, well, that's not like that. You're assuming that because it's always been this way, it should be this way instead of thinking like, well, now you're going to get. 85% 85% of the pie. That's most of the pie still. Right, and I know right. that for a lot of individuals out there, they're like, well, that's some other white man. That's not me. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. it's like, but I do think that when, as we challenge these things and we expand it, it's going to create more opportunities down the line for more people because you're, again, you're the model of, of how do we cure cancer? It's sort of like um, creating more good filmmakers creates a better, stronger industry. The other interesting thing is that there is a bigger audience out there than the one that exists because the movies that that 85%, and I I don't, I'm sorry if 85% was one of many of the numbers you you cited and, but the, the major, that white male majority is making movies for a white male audience, right? There's audiences that exist that aren't that that could expand how much money the industry could make that could expand how much visibility the movies get or the stories get and it doesn't necessarily cut into so it's not like a zero sum game right that's kind of where i'm going is like you can make a movie that does extremely well um that nobody thought was going to do well because it's not in the business plan it's not in the model there's like a certain audience that the Avengers is targeting, right? They say right. that that's like everybody, but it's not. I A lot of people don't go see that movie. They might go see something else though. So I think it's not like there's only so many seats at this table. We can actually make a bigger table. I think that's the missing, that's the misunderstanding sometimes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And so that that's where I think kind of for independence, there's a an opportunity um, and they need to bring their uniqueness to the industry. They need to go out and film, need to go out and shoot. Um, uh, and I think as outlets for independence expand, then uh, you'll see more creative content uh, coming forth. I mean, still, most content that's created doesn't get distributed. So, so we, cre- we created soulvision.tv to give um, people who weren't getting distribution a chance to be in front of an international audience. I mean, we have, we're available on Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, and all mobile phones. And, you know, if it's, if it's a good content and it meets our criteria, meets our quality control, I can put it up, you know, to today, tomorrow. And it's a power that comes with the, the ability to distribute. And I take that power seriously. I take it as a responsibility. And um, I enjoy uh, the feedback we get when we work with these creatives and they see their stuff and their friends play it on their phones or on their TVs. And um, it's exciting. We also created a companion magazine and we're showcasing the next generation of creatives. Can I ask you something about about, uh, the TV part of it? How would a creator, because this is where I think we can get into the part that like how like you guys are you are forging ahead a path so again like talking about taking seats at a table you're making you're making a bigger table with what you're doing here and i think that how does a what i'm curious about is how does a filmmaker or creative come and get involved in an opportunity with you to get their content out there how do they reach 
you guys? What's the yeah, proper they, channels? Yeah, they go to our website and they just hit contact us. And uh, we have people monitoring the emails. It's info at solidify.com. We get scripts quite a bit. Uh, people pitch ideas for our magazine. We publish once a month. Uh, people pitch stuff for our TV network. Uh, we're also partnering with festivals and as a kind of uh, a prize for some of the better submissions, we'll work out a deal where we'll do an ad revenue share deal on our network and, um, and, it, and the quality content actually gets seen. Uh, early on, we, we wanted to enlighten and uplift. So our, our content is some faith-based and uh, just, but generally it's, it's positive content, it's authentic content. Um, if it's kind of hardcore, we don't do that on Soul Vision or Solidify. But what we will do is we've created a, a, a trailing company called Body Snatchers. Right. And so, and so that's for the, the, the folk who are a little bit more edgy. Right. And, and we don't want to turn them away. Because how do you teach them that, that that's no longer the model? Yes. Unless I bring them in under the tent. So right. we'll bring them in. We'll say, okay, I can't show this everywhere. I can't show this on the free networks. But we can put it up. And if people want to pay for it, then they've made a decision to bring this content into their homes. And so with Body Snatchers, we'll have you know, more of the edgy fare and we'll let people graduate to the, the, the media with the message. Right, if and, they can uh, do it. I, I, I love that because you're creating, uh, you're trying to put out content that people can consume and can do, like we said, uplift or inspire or, or put mm-hmm. out a message that's a little more positive and less like, Stop shooting pookie, as you said. Right. <laughs> like, like there's a place for that, but uh, but that's not the the message you want to be putting out constantly over and over again. And I think that right. that uh, it's nice that you built in those kind of divides. But yeah, I know there's a lot, you know there's a lot of creatives. This is the this is something we talk about. There's opportunities all over the place, um, and seeking out the right one where you can align your vision, you know, and the stories you want to tell and learn. And and it seems like you you develop the stable of talent, right? in-house to some extent, like you guys to, graduate to, people to different projects. To, to, to some extent. And then we, 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 we partner, we have a collective that we do on a, on a, on a platform called base camp where we invite creatives, directors, actors, Malik Yoba is a part of it. Uh, Rodney Jerkins, dark child. He just did the executive production of the music for uh, one of the new films is out high note. Um, um, Miguel Nunez is involved, uh, and, and we just kind of share information about opportunities. We support each other, and then when we have projects, we start with the core team, but we also reach out widely. I mean, one of the things I learned when I was running the phone company was that you know talent is 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 equally distributed all over the planet, and so if you want the best people, then you got to cast a wide net. And if you pull in the best people, you'll often get the best result. I mean, I've got teammates who would go to the mat for our company. And so I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. I can sit back and, and hand it off to one of, the, uh, one of the teammates and they'll get it done. And if they need me, they'll pull me in. Or if I need them, I can pull them in. So we have, a, we have an approach to our creative expression that is collegial 
and that respects the intelligence of our colleagues. I mean, here's an example. So when I, my, my first attempt at making a movie, it's based on a script that I have called Love's Insurrection. It's a period piece. It was going to cost about 10 million, 10 and a half to make. And Monty Ross, who helped Spike Lee to form 40 Acres and a Mule, said, well, BK, how many dinners are we away from $10 million? And I'm like, we're a lot of damn dinners away from $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was Hans Charles who, who lends uh, the 13th for Ava DuVernay. He was in the room and he said, well, can we, do we have enough to do maybe a couple of smaller films? And I said, well, how, how much smaller? And we came up with the budget. You know, we had, we had about a, a million and change. And so the two films that we end up making we had the money for. So Monty said, how many dinners are we away from, you know, a million dollars? And I was like, we are no dinners away. We can write those checks tomorrow. <laughs> and so that's what we did. And so we made love.com, the social experiment, which is available on Netflix right now. And we made um, one angry black man, which has been you know critically acclaimed and has picked up theatrical now. So we're in like a hundred, almost a hundred theaters streaming virtually. And later on today, I have a, a, a company who wants to maybe partner with us to do P&A for that film so we can get more people to see it. I mean, it's, it's amazing what has happened. It's kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, but it grew out of respecting my colleagues, having that meeting and being honest and saying, we don't have enough to make the period piece right. right. We, can, we can spend your money and, 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 and deliver some crap. But instead we made two smaller films very well and now they're in the marketplace and they're performing and it, and, and the, and the performance gives us an opportunity to make the next, I, I hope to make 70 plus films before it's my time to leave the planet. I, um, well, it sounds uh, like at the rate you're going, that that could be pretty fast. <laughs> it could be well, well I mean, depending like, well, I don't mean the part of leaving the planet. So I mean, I, there you go. I appreciate I mean, that. I, <laughs> I mean, you could, uh, you could, you, these movies could, the rate you're making these movies, uh, you could hit that number well before the time you're going to leave the planet. Uh, I, I, I hope so. I hope so. That, <laughs> that is the plan. I mean, so we put out, you know, four in our first year. We'll put out, end up putting out five this year, probably another three or four next year. That's a lot. Uh, that's it, a, that's a, a lot. big slate for considering and, and it, that you guys started this, like you just lifted this up, you know, out yeah, of the earth. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, the, and the cool thing is, I mean, it probably helps that I, I, retired from running a big company. And so I know what it takes to scale. I know how to manage people. I know how to manage assets. So a lot of times, you know, in the show business, you got people who want the show part and the vanity of it, but they might not be so good at the business part of it. And so they make bad decisions. They waste resources, that sort of thing. Uh, instead, that's I'm actually, creator. I think, I think that's common even at the very right. highest levels. I think that, well, well, that's almost well, yeah. part of the deal. <laughs> well, that, that's a fair point. And so for me, I'm a, a, a creative who's also a businessman. And, um, and so we've had the kind of 180 degree different experience than most independents. I mean, all our films are getting distribution. All of them will be profitable. Um, it seems like all, what you're doing is you're trying to build something sustainable that can yes. continue to fulfill a mission statement. I think a yes. lot of times independents and a lot of producers and production companies out there are uh, looking to do something different. 
I don't even know. You know, it's different in every instance, but it's not always like, hey, we have a mission statement and we're trying to fulfill it by staying in business and we want a repeatable. I mean, there's examples you can make. You can be Roger Corman, right? Like there's people who find a way to sustain a business and continue to make content. And uh, there's a way to do that. Because like I said, the audiences are much larger than anybody in the mainstream of the industry even recognizes. Yeah. Um, I mean, to, to, to your point, so, so, so my mission is to create media with the message to lift the kids and the culture. I have, my, my fundamental belief is in people. I'm a humanist. I love humanity. I love different cultures. I love different foods. I love being Southern. Some of my best friends are brothers from another mother. And I'm okay with that. And, and, and so this work is not about the money for me, although we're, we're successful. Right. And, and being successful allows us to do more work. So that's right. why I make sure that it's successful. But at the end of the day, this is about my core belief that if I can tell people the different story, the story that changed my life, if I can tell them those stories, it'll change their lives, their lives too. They'll love me as much as I love them because they begin to see the value in me and, 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 and the value in themselves. It, it's not this limited pie where they have to take me out so, right. so they can have what their kids can have. That's, that's what that, that indoctrination taught. We've got to take the land from the Native Americans. We've got to work the hell out of these Africans and then kill them. We've got to take, oh, take, 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 take. No, stop. Cut it out. Cut <laughs> it out. You don't need to do that. We can have it all and more if we work together. And so my films are designed to be a catalyst for that working together. At the end of the day, I believe in our country. I believe in our people. I believe in humanity. I am, am trying to not see race or class as much as we've been taught to see it. I don't think we're there yet, but that's what I'm hoping for. It's nice. Uh, just speaking for myself, it's really nice to hear a message of hope that someone believes in times like these. <laughs> I I appreciate it. Um, these are hard times to have faith uh, in humanity, in this country, in some of its leadership, in its direction. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to question things. And uh Turning. Let me share this with you. Let me share this with you to that point. Thank you for sharing that. So you've heard of Ida B. Wells, right? So she was she, she did a lot of the lynching reports back in the in the early 1900s. She would often disguise herself. She was a pioneer of investigative journalism. Her I have studio, not heard of her. So this is, this oh, is new it's, to me. it's important for you to know her her oh, her, yeah. her home or her, her her office was firebombed. There were wow. you know, kind of secret warrants out for her assassination. Uh, she was a wanted woman, but she still risked her life to write, you know, these 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 accounts of the lynching of you know largely black men at the time. And her, I was at a forum in Chicago, and her her granddaughter was there. And one of the questions was, well, why did your grandmother risk her life to tell these stories? And the answer. Just, just so full of hope. She said, what my grandmother said was that she believed that every person, no matter how vile, had at least one cord of decency in them. 
And if she struck that chord with truth, her faith told her that it would sound in justice and righteousness. And that is why she was willing to risk her life, because her faith told her that if she struck that chord of decency with truth, it would sound in justice and righteousness. What else can we have but hope? She faced a different future than I did. It was more bleak for her. Yeah. It was more bleak for my ancestors than it is for me. I don't have the luxury of looking out today and not being hopeful. I have to pick up the mantle and go from here. You have to pick it up and go from here. And by the way, there were white people back in the day. You know, yesterday's abolitionist is today's progressive. Those people put it on the line for, for what was right. I love those people. They're my heroes. They're among my heroes. And, and so we, we can't forget, once we start getting into the real history and the true history, and again, closing that gap between indoctrination and critical thinking, we will discover that there's a lot that we love about what everybody brought to the table, flaws and all. I mean, you hate or love LBJ at the critical mm. moment. Yeah. He got the, 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 some critical acts, Voting Rights Act and others through. Um, Justice Hugo Black addressed the Klan and Klan regalia over 100 times, I think over 150 times. But at the critical moment, he voted with the Supreme Court unanimously on Brown versus Board. Abraham Lincoln would debate Frederick Douglass to the end on the inferiority of, of blacks. But at the critical moment, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which turned the tide of the war. And so I don't expect human beings to ever be perfect. None of us are, including myself. But what I do know is that if we want to become the best version of, this, of ourselves, we have to do the work. We have to do the hard work of the conversations, of getting together, and, and I know that the result will be worth it. I believe that God blesses all of us to turn our dreams and ideas into their tangible equivalents, and we have to have the faith, be willing to do the work, and expect the outcomes. And it is the filmmaker, the artist, who can help to change that mind, to get it right, to, to, to bring that artistic fertilizer. Did you look at it from this angle? Did you look at it from that angle? Look at the way the sun hits it when you turn this way. Look at the horizon that's created with this camera. Let me add this lens. Let me turn up the music here. Let me add the dramatic sounds here. And then you feel, and then you begin to understand. You become empathetic with the characters. And then we've changed your heart and your mind. We've elevated you to a place of humanity and looking out for your brother. Then I see the you, I see me and you, and then you see you and me. And we put down our arms, we put down the things, the, the, the things of, of divisiveness, and we become a part of the divine puzzle of life. And everybody then is bringing their best piece and bringing their, you bring your piece and I bring my piece. And this puzzle comes together and it always resolves in love. At the end of the day, once we bring our best selves together, 
We bring love. We can solve problems. We can become the country that we're all proud of. We all can have hope. Uh, yeah, it's beautifully said again. I, I, I am fixated now on this idea of the finding that, that one chord in an individual, because as you mentioned, history is filled with extremely complicated people. Um, the world is full. Everybody's a complicated person. Uh, with with dark sides and positives and uh, mistakes and cruelties, but also everybody seems to have in in the in the best vision we can have for our future and ourselves and each other. Uh, maybe somewhere they can be reached so they can act differently in the right moment, like you said, um, and change. And the capacity for change. It's ironic or it's interesting because change is what good stories are about. They're about people changing and uh, we can tell those stories and we can inspire people to look at themselves and change and find their better nature. And that's, that's really the beauty of storytelling. And we talk about it with how we approach screenwriting and how we train people to tell a story is to find ways to make characters change fundamentally. And, you know, some of these topics we're talking about, it almost it can almost inspire, I think, people to tell better stories because there are still really important, powerful stories to be told. And we live in a world of extremes, it feels right now, but a message of hope and uh, one where we can focus on our inner humanity or our shared humanity is, is really powerful right now. Um, I think it's necessary. And thinking critically about the world around us and the stories we're telling and the ones we've told is, I agree. It's the key um, to understanding where we come from and where we can go. Uh, so I think it's, I think what you guys are doing is amazing and exciting. Um, and I'm excited to put this out there because I want more. I think I want, I, I hope that more filmmakers and aspiring creatives can can find ways to connect to exactly what you've talked about, which is a mission, a real tangible reason to do it and wake up every day. It's not, as you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, but as you know, it's okay. It's making, okay. I like it. Making movies is really hard, right? It absolutely <laughs> And is. our listeners know this too, and our readers know this. It's a really hard thing to choose to do. I think to do it, it's it's really helpful to have like you're saying, something something that you value really about why you're doing it that can drive you forward. And I think that's why you're finding success. I think that's why mm -hmm. you guys are finding success is because there's a real reason. It's not just like you said, the show and show business, it's not always like that. that it's not always so pretty. It doesn't always go so well, even when you're mm -hmm. successful. But I think mm -hmm. if you're connected to a real reason and it motivates you to go out there and do the work then you may find the success will come because that because people will respond to it and uh, it'll keep you fighting. You know, it's hard, hard to make movies. Um, so it's good to have a real connected reason. Um, can you tell us a little bit before we end just about, you know, what's next, what you guys are working on, um, where we can find some stuff, more stuff. I mean, you've mentioned, I know all the, the movies are out there, right? They're, right. they're on all the platforms. Exactly. Um, but, yeah. but, uh, what's coming next and what are you guys expanding into and, and what are the projects on the slate right now? Are you in production on some things? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the next big thing will be uh, uh, Freedom's Path, 
had a wonderful director uh, from the West Coast, uh, Brett Smith, and he's put together an antebellum period treatment of a friendship, an unlikely friendship. So that one's going to be special. Um, Sounds in the work really well timed again. <laughs> well, it, yeah, that, that 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 seems to be happening to me a lot these days. I've got a <laughs> I, I've got a, I've got a book actually that that'll be coming out in August called The Tale of the Tea. And that book uh, chronicles seven days of emails and writings and kind of output. And the purpose of the book is um, to show how two people from different communities, so the co-writers, a Jewish guy, and come came to the, the same conclusion about truth and its healing power. Um, although we came from different perspectives and I didn't even know him. I met him through my wife. He saw my, where my wife cleaned an Oliver Hill sign and sent her a note. And she copied me and told him about my movies. And he watched One Angry Black Man and said how wonderful it was. And, and this speech I gave at a university called Remembering Those on the Margins for the Da Vinci Center. And all of a sudden we became friends and got to the place where we're carrying, we're both carrying golf tees everywhere we go to remember those that have been forgotten and to also remember what the work we need to do to go forward. And so the tale of the tea kind of eloquently captures hmm. that. Um, there's a movie that uh, we just signed a distribution agreement for. It's an Afro-Caribbean movie called Joseph. Um, and that one will be out uh, shortly. Um, we had a run in theaters, but when the theater shut down, that put the nicks on that. So we right. decided to get some help with some, some larger distributors. Um, we are about to go into filming on a new project with Tay Diggs. Um, actually, I just heard from Wes on that this morning. So uh, tentatively titled Six Hours. So we'll start filming that um, pretty soon. And um, glad to know Wes is busy. <laughs> glad to know Wes Big is busy. <laughs> Absolutely appreciate that. And then we've got a couple of secret projects on deck. One that's huge. I, I can't spill the beans just yet, but um, we have come across some uh, very valuable assets from a well-known artist. And there's going to be a, a, a few projects wrapped around those assets. And then this year, one of the more uh, cool things that'll benefit all filmmakers is that we're, we're working with uh, Stacy Spikes, the original creator of MoviePass and the founder of the Urban World Film Festival, the largest multicultural film festival on the planet, to release an app called Pre-Show, preshow.co. So we've raised the money we need. Uh, the app will allow people to go to any theater any IMAX or pay for any digital streaming service by just watching ads. So hmm. it's very eloquent. You, you, you pull up the app, you pick the film you want to see, you watch the associated pre-show or ads, then your virtual credit card gets loaded and you go get your ticket. Hmm. And uh, very eloquent. If you, if you, if it's a, your Netflix, you want to pay, you hit the Netflix button, you watch the ad, it pays your Netflix. You're good to go for the month. Huh. And, and it opens and, and up your your ability to stream or go see the content based on well, your... Well, it, 
it, it, exactly. So, so, it, so you, you, once you do the thing with the app, then your experience, you watch Netflix, wherever you watch Netflix, you go to, you actually go to the cinema. So people thought we were trying to do it all on the phone or iPad or computer. We're like, no, that's just the way you interact with the ad, but the actual movie asset, you're going to the theater or you're going to the IMAX or you're watching on your big screen TV at home with your IMAX or with your, with your Netflix subscription. So we're, we've created this thing and it'll be worldwide. So that's kind of, kind of cool actually. And again, cause I love movies and I want people to go to the movies. You're making it more possible for more people, right? For, to for more people to, exactly. Because and, and then that, just straight up ticket sales isn't necessarily a, I mean, I love this idea. It's like, it's not a business model that may be working in the long term, but advertisers need to find a way to get in and have a relationship. And I can see how you're create, you're connecting a couple dots there that exactly sustain that experience but also bring the advertisers in and to bring them in and and then the cool thing about pre-show is that we have patented technology so if someone looks away from the ad the ad pauses so we guarantee to the advertisers that their ad will be watched. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, exciting so for the advertiser. It, 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 well, you 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 got that right. You just and, you just uh, I just it just brought to mind the image of the uh, the Clockwork Orange thing where his eyes are open. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so it's so it's interesting. I think you know, but we're willing to try something different, and the, the theaters like it, the studios like it. Um, I'm looking forward to. Uh, people being able to go back to the theaters, us being able to go back and interact, but we need to be smart and we need to uh, stay safe right now while the scientists figure out a virus, I mean, a a vaccine for the virus. Uh, But we're still creating. I mean, a lot of our stuff was in the can already or or in post-production when COVID-19 hit. So everything we have, we've been able to sell. And um, I'm, I'm very pleased with that. Not everybody gets to say that. And we're on the radar now of more um, of, of larger studios because they like our model of high production value, relatively suppressed budgets and impactful uh, content that's authentic, that's artistic, that's touching a chord. I mean, our motto is... Uh, we bemuse, we make meaningful, uplifting stories that are entertaining and beautifully told. So they always have to be beautiful. They always have to be entertaining. They need to be uplifting. They need to be real stories. Sometimes they're cautionary tales. Sometimes they're romantic comedies. Sometimes it's a, it's a heady drama, like One Angry Black Man, that causes you to think. And um, I, I'm, I'm happy looking at this set of films as the legacy that I will leave as a person who believes in humanity. Yeah. Well, you have a, I mean, looking at the slate, it's a real variety of genre and, and uh, yeah, it seems like it's, it's expanding and, and, you know, we're going to keep an eye and we'll definitely love to have you back anytime um, to hear about new things you guys are doing and where things are going specifically as, you know, productions go through whatever they do to, to exist during the COVID-19 era and we'll we'll want to check back in and definitely and uh, stay in touch. But it was it was really an honor, a pleasure to have you on and to hear from you. And uh, I appreciate it. We could have gone on a lot longer, honestly, but but yeah. I think we covered a lot of good, important stuff. And I'm excited about 
what you're doing. And like I said, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks for listening to our interview with BK Fulton. It was a joy to conduct it and speak to him. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like I was really happy to be exposed to somebody who is approaching this industry this way and finding success. It gives me hope um, for a more unified future, for an industry that works, for people who want to go out and carve a path themselves in this business and find the audience they know exists and give them content they think is good and worthwhile. And all of those things kind of melding together as a mission statement, it's really cool to put it like to put it mildly. It's really cool. I am just so excited for him. And uh, I hope so many more people take this as a rallying cry to do the same thing and to bring the right intentionality to what you do and to find success that way. Um, Cause I think it's a good recipe. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff happening on nofilmschool.com. As always, please make sure to like, subscribe, rate, leave a comment, ask us questions at ask at nofilmschool.com. And we will answer them on our regular weekly podcast with Charles Hain, Michelle De La Torre, and myself. Plus, over on the website, we have some really exciting camera news coming at you soon. It's going to be a big July in terms of those things. And of course, we will keep you informed as we learn more about the future of our industry and coronavirus and COVID-19 and all the shutdowns and reopenings, etc. So thanks again for listening. And hope to hear from you soon.